Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, the two of them starred most recently in the revival of the musical Camelot at Lincoln Center. The reason I had them both on a panel live in Bryan Park as part of my Books on Broadway series is that unbeknownst to me, maybe to you, Camelot the film and the Broadway musical were based on a novel by T.H. White called The Once and Future King. And it was really thrilling to sit down with Andrew Burnap and Dakin Matthews and hear all about the making of Camelot. Welcome, Andrew and Dakin. A-OK. A-OK. My guests today are Andrew Burnap. Andrew, wave to the audience. And hey, Dakin everybody. Matthews who are both starring in a little show called Camelot on Broadway, playing at the Lincoln Center Theater. I'm gonna just name a few of the credits that these two gentlemen have been in and and then we'll get the conversation started. But Andrew plays King Arthur in the show and Dakin plays Merlin and Pelinor. And both of my guests have huge careers with so many credits, but some highlights of Andrew's include for the theater, The Inheritance on Broadway and in London, This Day Forward, Troilus and Cressida. On film, he can be seen in the front room, Disney's Snow White, not to be confused with anybody else's Snow White. (laughs) Spare Room, We Crash, Dear Edward, The Good Fight, and so many more. And the legendary Dakin Matthews starred in the Lincoln Center Theater production of Henry V. Some of his other Broadway credits include To Kill a Mockingbird, The Iceman Cometh, Waitress, Rocky, A Man for All Seasons, and I think something like over 250 film and TV credits. I'm not going to list them all now because I want to get into this glorious, beautiful production of Camelot. And one of the concepts in the reading room, which is all about books, as you know, and why Camelot was selected for today, is their source material for Camelot, that that before it was a musical and the movie we love, there was a book. This book, this musical, the film, tell me like what you, you hear they're casting Camelot on Broadway. Right. Tell me like the story of Andrew becoming a part of this production. My only relationship to Camelot was as a kid, I watched the cartoon, The Sword and the Stone. There you go. Of the young boy king pulling the sword out of the, out of the stone. And so when I heard that they were doing Camelot, uh, I was sort of like, oh, I actually don't know that at all. I know th- that one song that that great guy sings, uh, <laughs> uh, If Ever I Should Leave You, but that's it. And so then I told my grandmother, who is unfortunately no longer with us, that they're doing Camelot in Lincoln Center, and her eyes lit up. Like she was basically told that, I don't know, that I was... Jesus had exactly, returned yes, for, for that's lunch. That's exactly yes. right. Um, and so 
her face is what led me to think, oh, uh, maybe I should do this. Um, and then I, then I watched the movie and thought, this is the weirdest thing I think I've ever seen in my life. And, but it had so much joy to it and so much heart. And um, I'm such a fan of, of Richard Harris. And then I did the deep dive of the history of the musical, the great icons that are attached to the history of this, of this thing. And then started reading this book, which is maybe even weirder than the movie. So delightful and so fun. But every, you read three pages and you need to take a walk. It's so dense. And there are three sections of it. And they're all so wildly different. And they're all different interpretations that you can basically pick and choose what to believe and what not to believe. Um, and if you didn't catch on, Art, Arthur is... I, I received a text when I got cast in this. Congratulations, Wart. And I was like, who texted me congratulations? And what's Wart? Well, I realized Wart is Arthur in the beginning. And that's how he's referred to. Um, so I knew nothing about it and then did a deep dive and kind of fell in love with all aspects of it. And did you have to audition or was it an offer that like a text without auditioning that says you're Ward or oh, was I, it a lame I wish, face? I okay. wish, I wish. Not what happened. No, I did, I did an audition um, with uh, Bart Shear, who was who's our lovely director, um, who is uh, uh, so, so sweet and gregarious and lovely. But when you first meet him, you think, what is this guy's deal? He's so odd in the loveliest way. And I got into the room and it was silent, dead silent when I got into the room and thought, this is going to be the worst audition of my life. And maybe it, it was and, for and, you. And maybe it, it, for the first 10 <laughs> minutes, it, it just about was. I was yeah. in full sweats thinking, oh, this is a big mistake. I should yeah. never have done this. Meaning um, he doesn't even say, hi, Andrew, welcome. <laughs> he, he did, but he was so, he's, he was so preoccupied, I think, with, the, with the, the, the task of casting Arthur that, I, I don't know, he just, it, he didn't, he, he didn't, I didn't come into the room and think, oh, this is a lovely room to be no in. No chit-chat. No, no. His bedside manner needs a little help. Okay. But that's okay. We love him still. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I auditioned for it and had a great time and sort of blacked out as if any, uh, anyone is are actors in the room, th they know that to be true. I don't really know what happened, but then I got out of the room and thought, well, I didn't, I don't think I royally screwed it up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then got a call a week later that they wanted me to do it. So I tricked them. So, and Dakin, we're going to get to your story. Um, you sang and did tech reading I, from I the sang, script, that I one audition? Yes, exactly. I sang. I did some scenes from the script um, with a reader uh, and, um, and then had some, some chats with them and tried to convince them that I wasn't a crazy person. And, well, you know, but that they were? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> You're the crazy exactly, person. Exactly, right. All right. Uh, and then, yeah, they asked me to do it. Amazing. So, all right. We have... We have entertainment legend Dakin Matthews here. I mean, there's no one who's walking through this park of thousands of people, whether it's Gilmore Girls or or Waitress, right? Like, or, or films. I mean, you have one of the most recognizable faces. What is the thing that people constantly ask you to tell them? You know, and they're like, what do I know you from? Tell me like what most people think they know you from or you end up realizing, oh no, it's this. I think uh, most people want to know what Gilmore Girls set was like. Right. Oh, yeah. That what's, remains. What's Lauren like? What are those girls like? And why do you all talk so fast? I think that's well, I kind of have all those questions, but I guess it's a Camelot panel, so we'll do our Gilmore Girls. Um, well, I think about the writing on Gilmore Girls. I think about how Aaron Sorkin writes, who, yeah. who, who readapted this piece for the stage. He is also known for being quite exacting about his expectation of how his scripts are read and they're also very fast talkers his characters oh yes so how did you come to be a part of this production 
Um, I had worked with uh, Bart on To Kill a Mockingbird for about three years. We did uh, all the workshops and the trip. And then towards the end of that, uh, Lincoln Center decided to do a one-night reading of Camelot uh, at, with the music as a gala presentation. And Bart asked me to read Merlin, which was a, in the original book, which was a very small part. And I did that with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda playing Arthur at the time. And then, then it went so well, I think, Lincoln Center decided that they would do the production, and Bart contacted me directly and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a couple of workshops of the, of the show. This is a lot how uh, plays are cast nowadays in New York, uh, not cold casting, but you, you do workshops of it, and they get a chance to evaluate you rather than auditioning. So we did workshops together. And I did a couple of workshops of it. One, of the last one was a really exciting workshop that we did, and then I just went right into the to the show. When you say exciting, tell me what came to mind. What was about was something electric about I it? I think the most exciting thing about the last workshop was that Bart invited two uh, actor trainers from the Théâtre des Soleil in France, who are sort of famous for their inventive way of staging group scenes and creating a, a, an ensemble. And they came in and worked with us for about a week and a half on various exercises. Some of them, which I, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an old school guy. I don't do improvisation. <laughs> I don't do theater games until that, until that week. And it was extraordinary what, the, what we learned from it. We didn't do anything from the show. We just did various exercises to, to form a company that not only worked together, but sort of breathed together and moved together and had the same sort of style and the same approach. There were many exercises where one person would be at the front like the one pin, and six or seven actors would be behind them like the two, three, four, five, six, and they had to imitate whatever the one pin was doing to music. So everybody began to work like they were a single organism in many ways. And Bart adopted some of this for the play so that the, the, the characters in the play create the scenes that are there. They bring all the furniture on. They all move in the same sort of way. It, sort of, it formed an, an incredibly um, tight ensemble among the company. And I, they, virtually everybody from that workshop became the, the cast of the play because of that, I think. So the relationship between Merlin, I mean, you come back in Act Two as another character, but there's something so, A, universal, and so beautiful about the father-son relationship, the, the mentor-mentee, yeah. sort of the, the orphan boy vibe with, like, this person who adopts him. And, and obviously, spoiler alert, like, when you lose Merlin, you're, it kills you, yeah. right? right? I mean, it kills you. Yes, King Arthur, yes, yes. and in the audience, you're just really bereft. Like, mm. what will this person do without this guiding light? And how do we hold on to the guiding light of the people we love once they do pass? And so you guys are so beautifully connected in this play. I love knowing a little bit of what the, the rehearsal energy was and, and how this family was formed. But you as an old school guy, as you called yourself, maybe think of yourself like, I learn my lines, I come in, I stand where the director wants me. But there's a really uniquely beautiful relationship between the two of you. Can you guys speak to how, what was the moment 
maybe it's humorous, an anecdote from rehearsal where you were like, okay, we got this. We know who we are. Well, I think the most, most interesting, as you'll see from the, from the second reading, um, what Andrew calls weird about this is the magical elements of Once and Future King, where Merlin is, in fact, a magician. But it's, a, it's not like, you know, tabletop magic. He has some sort of connection with the whole universe, especially with the animal kingdom. So that he is capable of teaching Arthur by transforming him into various animals or ha giving him the ability to talk and listen to animals and learning that even human beings are part of the natural world. And the, it's, like, it's sort of like the force in some ways. It's like you draw on the life force that exists not just in human beings, but in trees and oceans and fish and birds and, and animals. So that's what he sort of teaches him. Aaron decided in the rewrite to try to make the relationship not magical between them, but that Merlin had a kind of wisdom uh, and was teaching him not how to transform himself into various animals or fly over the battlefield and see what was going on, but just learn uh, earthly wisdom, a certain amount of humility, and a certain amount of prescience about what might happen in the future. So we had to establish a relationship not based on my ability to transform him, even though he sort of felt it was a kind of magic, there was no magic involved, but rather that between a tutor who taught hard lessons to a boy, basically. And, uh, and that's, what, uh, that's what I think what, so I thought, okay, I can't, I, can't take, I can't take a persona of a magician when I'm doing this, even though he may feel like it's magic. So I had to find some other persona to adopt, something that Merlin had a certain authority, but also a certain harshness about him, like not, not an easy tutor, but a hard tutor. Uh, uh, someone, uh, sometimes a humiliating tutor. One who constantly, you know, r r r would berate his pupil. Yeah. Yes, yes. In the, in the, um, in the play, uh, there's a line. That, oh, this line. Hang on, we're just going to switch out mics. We call that okay. tough love. Well, so anyway... I adopted as my persona. Oh, Andrew, that's perfect. He gets to go on. <laughs> I adopted as, as, as one of my personas uh, Professor Kingsfield from the Paper Chase, from my mentor, John Hausman. So, so John Hausman, uh, when you were at Juilliard, he was your Merlin, would you say? Uh, uh, he was certainly a rough teacher. <laughs> but he wasn't Professor Kingsfield. He had a heart. He had a... He had a heart of gold, but uh, I, the Professor Kingsfield was a good image for me to use. Yeah. Did you did you go to Juilliard or Yale? Where did you go to theater school? Um, I went to uh, Yale School of Drama. Okay. Yes. Did you have a teacher who humiliated you into <laughs> success, or did you find it was a kinder, gentler? Yes, ki kinder, gentler. I mean, there's a there's a line in the play uh, that I find sort of sums up. Um, Merlin and Arthur's relationship very well, which is uh, Guinevere asked Arthur, you know, what, what, what did Merlin used to say? And, and Arthur's response to that question is, well, he used to say, my God, you're the slowest student anyone's ever tried to teach. So that's the sort of, you know, um, he very much puts Arthur in his place. In acting school, I, I, more, I more had 
teachers who were who sort of pushed you to the pres precipice in a, in a more kind, gentle way, um, uh, who would ask you questions that sort of would certainly leave you humiliated, but it wasn't their point to leave you humiliated. You were humiliated you did that because all you did it all yourself. Yes, it's amazing <laughs> how much you can do yourself to humiliate, humiliate <laughs> yourself. Um, but, uh, but yes, it is. You know, there's nothing. You know, there's nothing nice about Merlin. In, in, in this iteration, in our iteration. No. It, is, no. it, it is, you it's know, niceness is, is I think niceness in our world is expensive. It's, we don't have time to be nice. Yeah. We have a civilization to fight for and, and uh, a society to change. So where does niceness fit into that? Now, kindness is a different story. Generosity right. is a different story. But I, I think it's clear that Merlin loves Arthur. Yes, Arthur very much Merlin, so. But the love never, uh, never presents itself as anything the least bit sweet. <laughs> yes, right, right. <laughs> well, tough tough like love, we call it. That's what, that thematically, there, there's, there's a lot of that in the play of sort of how do you recognize at a time where everything is about, it's arranged, this is the right person for you to be married to, this is the correct person for you to listen to. Um, void of emotion is sort of um, how these people are raised at the time. It's all quite strategic. Yeah for survival's sake, as you just described. So I, it would be remiss of me to not bring up, even though she's not here, Philippa Sue, right. uh, an extraordinary actress who many of us got to know for the first time when she was in Hamilton and sort of what stole our hearts. H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N, Hamilton. It's a little show that seemed, I don't know, we'll see what happens for it. Got it. Yes. Um, and so I would imagine there are a lot of people also who come to your show because they know her. You know, the, you, as you said, people come because, oh, there's the guy from Gilmore Girls. Or, oh, my God, the inheritance floored me. I'm going to go see Camelot. A whole generation of people who knew nothing about this show. So can you tell when there are a lot of, like, Hamilton fans in the audience? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. What is that? Can you describe for our <laughs> listeners at home when their, their faces lit up and their eyes seem to register the question. Um, what does that mean? Um, when uh, Guinevere has a great entrance in this, and so when, when, when you see that it's Philippa Sue, have any of you ever been to a Lady Gaga concert? It's a lot like that. Um, <laughs> it's a, and, and I sort of- for Gaga. Yes, going, I run off the stage and, and uh, hide from Guinevere, and you just hear this eruption of cheers and laughter from you know, it's not like it's a section of the audience. It's a whole swath of the audience. And if anybody doesn't know who she is, they very quickly look to their left and someone's cheering and just join right in. Right. So it's a, it's a pretty cosmic uh, reaction. Puts us all in a good mood, too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I know that people listening and everyone in the audience sort of loves to hear mishaps mm. that happen. You guys have been running for a while now. It's a pretty well-oiled machine. Reviews are done. Award yeah. season's over. It's yours. Like, it's just yours to play. The stage manager may have to rein you in sometimes <laughs> now that the director no, is, not us. is not around. Can you, maybe I'll start with you. Andrew, is there, like, something you'd be willing to share uh, that we in the audience might not know what's been going on, but you're <laughs> dying? <laughs> may <laughs> I laughing. share? Yeah, sure, sure. May I share? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> there was a time... Are there any children around there? Um, there was a time when um, uh, a scene was going on, and, and now Dakin is quite literally a legend. And if there's anyone less dependable, more dependable than Dakin, <laughs> I, I, I challenge you to show me. 
There was one night you where... you know that we were in the middle of cutting. He's already defending himself. And so the scenes were getting shorter and shorter. I have to defend Changes myself. Yes, yes. Happening. The scenes yes. were getting shorter Changes were happening, yes. yes, in his great defense. The, the script was not yet set. In, 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 the, in, in no one's defense. We had rehearsed it during the day, but that's no bother. <laughs> we did it, and Dagan is sitting on the other side, and there's a silence, just a small silence, that to us, you know, feels like 10 minutes to so the audience has no, uh, no idea. And all of a sudden you just hear from the wings, oh shit. <laughs> and Dakin comes running on. Now, meanwhile, the actors on stage who are trained to make sure that the show goes on turned where Dakin was supposed to make his entrance and just watched in silence. Didn't do anything to help the show move forward. And Dakin comes running on to save the day. That was one of the funniest things to ever happen. Do you hear him like running up the yes, steps? You, you heard <laughs> the, the two words room. that he exclaimed and the running <laughs> shoes. Yes, uh, it was so great. A week now, later, a week later, our uh, Lancelot missed an entrance. <laughs> so I went to his dressing room afterwards and I said, clearly you've not been paying attention, Lancelot. You don't know how a real actor misses an entrance. <laughs> The important thing for us is to say, oh, shit, loud enough for the microphone to pick it up. <laughs> and then run on through the wrong door, bellowing your line. So please be a little more attentive. Do it again. Us. Do it again. Um, well, I think that the amount of joy you are bringing New York audiences now, it's off the charts. Um, are there certain rituals that you do before every show? Are you a superstitious person in that way, Andrew, in terms of I need this, this, and this in order to feel like I'm going to be good tonight? Somewhat, yes. There's definitely some things that I need to do. Uh, uh, but, like, the order sometimes messes it up. But if there's, you know, the worst thing to happen is if you're on stage and something goes wrong and your mind goes, I should have done the thing that I usually do right. then you're you're that's not You've you're, left you're, the you're in tough water exactly yes. yeah yeah um so i i wouldn't say i'm terribly superstitious but there are some things you know everything from warming up your body and stuff but i have to have my special ginger and lemon tea and if i don't have that then i can't possibly go on <laughs> the stage manager uh, ladies and gentlemen we have a new king arthur yeah, exactly, tonight there exactly. was no tea <laughs> in the dressing room Heads shall roll. <laughs> what about you, Dagan? This is your 7,000th no, play. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't have any, any rituals other than now that I'm 82, uh, a nap before the show. That's, <laughs> that's my ritual. Do you meet as a company? Some companies warm up together on stage. Yes. Is that something you guys well, do? Well, nowadays it's required if you have a show in which there are fights or any uh, strong physicalizations of people being lifted or thrown or carried all of those have to be rehearsed every day before the show, uh, before, before you come to half hour. So we all have uh, a fight warm-up, and we all have a, a lift and throw warm-up, I guess you would say. Right. Yeah. Well, we, all, we throw Dakin across the stage, yeah. and that's how we all yeah. warm up. That's how you warm up. I'm uh, asleep at the time, so I don't notice. As you drink your tea. Um, do you have a favorite moment, Andrew, in the show? A favorite moment? There are so many. Well... Uh, it's very hard. There's a there's a a couple that come to mind. Um, I suppose one of my favorite moments is actually when I'm I'm not on stage. Is when uh, is is listening to the uh, the actor who plays Lancelot sing "If Ever I Should Leave You." It's just sort of miraculous and yeah. gorgeous, and yeah. you know never loses its its magic. Yeah. So yeah. Th I would say that that's one of my favorite moments for sure. What about you, Dakin? I do have a favorite moment, and it's, it will surprise Andrew, I think. It's a scene in which I have no lines. Uh, 
I never intended to be an actor, and I fell into it sideways. But my first mentor in California when I was about 25, I guess, was an ex-Marine DI from Paris Island who ran a, a drama program that I, was, that I was part of. And he loved to do military plays, so every year he would do at least one military play, which meant all of his actors had to go through boot camp. They all had to learn how to march, how to salute, how to obey orders. And so, and a sort of an, an, a, a tribute to him, in one scene, I march in carrying the sword, march down, pass the sword off, receive it back, march up. So as a tribute to him, I, I took all my boot camp training, and I don't say a word in this scene, but I'm very proud of it that I sort of <laughs> keep, and I, I march not in cadence with everybody else, but in a special sort of formal cadence, and it's all, you know, sharp edges, and I just, I love that oh, scene. Oh, that's great. I love the things that are going on individually with all of you in this company that are so private, um, yet add to sort of the texture of every scene. As we, as we bring this conversation to a close, has there been a conversation with um, an audience member, perhaps at the stage door or in a talk back, something that someone says that you know, you're going to do a lot more shows after this, but you're like, I'm never going to forget when so-and-so said this to me after the show. Is there anything like that that you can share? Yes, there was this, um, there was this woman named uh, uh, Rosie who came hurrying. I, uh, on two show days, I, uh, because there's, it's, it's, it, the show is, is very taxing, and so on two show days, I try to get out of the theater as quickly as possible and, and go sort of take care of my body and, and, um, and my voice, and I, I sort of try to incognito leave. Um, and this woman came up to me and literally grabbed me. And she had tears in her eyes, and she said, you know, I, I'm a giant fan of the original. It, it took me a little while to get used to this one. Uh, I wasn't so sure at first, but once I let myself over to it, um, I just had the most transformative uh, experience. And she looked at me and she said, I felt for the first time the pain of losing not only the person you love uh, and the anticipated future of the of the the thing that you love, but but also um, your your entire belief system. I felt for the first time in this version that the world comes crashing down, and we're in the midst of that all around us. It feels like sometimes. So her, the 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 truth in her eyes and in her voice when she said that to me, and I sort of also started tearing up and said, Rosie, this is exactly why we, we do this thing, is to have a reaction like this. There's so many cynical reactions to everything that we see and sarcastic detachment. And, but when someone grabs you and looks at you and said that you made me feel something, that is the gift of all gifts. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I no one ever did that to me. But <laughs> they didn't grab you? But however, <laughs> However, what I, what I do recall, which, which always surprised me, is how many, for how many people this is their favorite musical. Mm. For how many people, and I think it's partially because of the, the 60s and the Kennedy Association with Camelot, there are people who say, I listen to this record every night until the grooves were worn out, you know. I had never, I'd never seen this play. I did not have the record. I'm not even sure I ever saw the movie. So I missed that whole, that whole movement. But for many people, this was a, a, a watershed musical yeah. for them. And so 
the ability to bring it back to them with the original orchestrations and with the new book that was somehow a little bit more meaningful than the old one, that was kind of rewarding. Well, we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. Just to that end, the night I was there, uh, the woman to my right was very much under the understanding that it was a sing-along. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't know if that is something you guys can hear oh from the gosh. stage, but I was like, hey, you know what? I paid a lot of money for this ticket. Oh my God. And I you know, I'm it's sure hard even backstage not to sing along every once <laughs> yeah, in a while. Right, right. Yes, but honestly, you know, I just kind of wanted to hear you guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was very good and didn't say anything because she's in her chair having her experience there and I'm going to have mine and I didn't want any fights breaking out in Lincoln Center. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have uh, Nancy here with a microphone. Would any of you like to ask a question to Andrew Dakin? Speak, uh, speak right into the mic. Thank you so much. Um, with a text like this that's so classic and with an Aaron Sorkin script, to what extent do you, are you able to experiment as actors when you were originally creating the show? Well, uh, Aaron is a rewriter. I remember when we did To Kill a Mockingbird, he rewrote it 44 times. <laughs> I remember the first workshop that he did we were just stunned by how wonderful it was. And we were all going, oh, God, let's go into rehearsal. Let's do this play right away. He picked up the script, and as he walked out the door, he said, boy, i got a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, and we kind of were astonished. But he rewrites, he rewrites, he rewrites. He's got a specific ear, and he wants you to say the line the way he hears it. Mm -hmm. So we don't – our experimentation was more in the movement and creating sort of the pictures. But, you know, I once suggested that there might be a lag as – as Andrew was going to crawl down the tree. And I said, well, I could ad-lib a few words. And he went, excuse me. Yeah. He went, improv, <laughs> ad-lib. <laughs> so not a lot of experiment, but you could go to him. I remember I went to him one time about a line, and I said, you know, something about wouldn't, wouldn't it be better if the line either were, were spaced differently or said, and he'll listen. I mean, he loves actors. He adores mm. actors. Mm. Little known fact, his, his degree was in musical theater. So, and he loves musicals as well. So he was, he was very open, but he's also, he's, he, he's a tough mentor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything Dakin says. <laughs> One more question. You gave a little answer to this, but... Um, when I see a matinee, and it's a particularly intense one, when I walk out of there, my next thought is, how are they going to do this again? Hmm. So in addition to what you said, and if you have anything, how do you do it again, like, a few hours later? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's funny. With, yeah, we do, so we do it eight times a week. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's not a short show. Um, and it is sort of all-encompassing. But it's a sort of magical thing of that there are certainly days where I'm sure you do too, or maybe you're just the, the, the greatest, to which the I know machine, you are. Yeah, the exactly. machine. But I wake is. up and I think, I can't possibly do this again. And I, you just show up with any hard thing. Yeah. You just show up, and that's the hardest thing to do, whether it is you want to start exercising more or eating better or any change or any big event that you have in your life, if you just show up, it's amazing what will take care of itself. Yeah. Um, now, there are some times where, you know, one of my favorite things was when I was doing uh, a scene with uh, the actor who plays Mordred and we were really feeling the scene and it was one of those times where we were like, wow, we're so good tonight. <laughs> and you just hear from the back, 
Ooh. <laughs> and we burst out laughing because it's like you just never know what's going to affect an audience and what's not and what's good and what's not. And someone you could be, you know, the juiciest peach in the world and someone just hates peaches. So you just never know what someone's reaction is going to be. You just have to show up and let it yeah. take you and have faith. I say also there are sort of two answers to that. The first is that in a production, if the production is going, the audience supplies so much energy to the actors that you're, you're really just sort of surfing the wave of the audience's energy. So it's not really that draining. I mean, it's, it's work, it is hard work, but so much energy is coming from a live audience that, that you ride that mm. like a wave. The second is like, like Pablo Casal said, before a concert, I don't know how I'll ever get through it. And as soon as I finish, I'm ready to do the next one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the art itself energizes. Even yeah. though the body, the, you know, the spirit is strong and the flesh may be weak, but the art itself re-energizes you, yeah. Mm. Well, congratulations to you both on just one of the most gorgeous, gorgeous productions of this classic. Thank you all for being with us today in Bryant Park to celebrate the arts and these glorious, glorious actors. Thanks so much for being a part of Bryant Park's programming. It doesn't happen without all of you. Mm. And thank you, Bryant Park. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. All right. Known fact, now you can watch hours and hours of my interviews with your favorite artists as they talk about the art they love to make on YouTube. That's right, I have a YouTube channel. It's called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Subscribe and enjoy. Little Known Fact, if you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.